Let's pray. Father, indeed, we are thankful for that firm foundation, the foundation that we have in your word, your good and precious promises of love and grace and kindness from you to us in Christ. We pray, Father, that as we look to your word, that we, your people, would be edified, we would be nourished, that we would be encouraged by your voice speaking to us this morning. We pray, Father, for those that are here that are not part of your people, those that do not know you, that you would make the gospel real in their minds and their hearts, and that you would call them to faith in Christ. We pray, Father, that as we allow ourselves to be exposed to your glory through your word, that we would not go away unchanged. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 18 this morning. Acts chapter 18. <clears throat> I imagine that <clears throat> at uh, various times all of us have had friends people that were in our life that uh, we thought we knew and then something happened, they did something, there was some circumstance that exposed either a different side of them or maybe who they really are and we thought to ourselves, maybe I, maybe I don't know them as well as I thought I did. Uh, this happens a lot in our uh, celebrity culture where uh, people are out in front of us either in sports or movies or uh, media personalities and there is a certain persona that is portrayed to the public and then something happens and suddenly we realize uh, they're not who we thought they were. And uh, sometimes uh, that can be a good thing. Uh, sin is revealed and that person is no longer being encouraged in their sin. But other times um, we have people that we may even esteem as heroes, people that we look up to that suddenly we, we don't care for anymore. Uh, this past week, I was reminded of Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame speech. And um, just full disclosure, I am not a huge sports guy, okay? If you've been at all listening to little hints and clues throughout the years I've been here preaching and teaching, you will know um, I struggled for sports illustrations, okay? Uh, that's, not, that's not my wheelhouse. I enjoy a good game, but uh, I, I can't even, you know, when the Reds made the playoffs, I was like, great, uh, who's on the team this year? Right? I mean, that's just who I am. But Jordan's speech was so emblematic of, uh, of this point, so infamous. Uh, I've watched it several times because here you have a guy that I can remember growing up and, I mean, we had the song, Like Mike, if I could be like Mike, I want to be, I want to be like, okay, that's enough singing. But I mean, this guy was everywhere. He had shoes, he was on posters, he was t-shirts, commercials, and he was just unstoppable on the court. And he comes to this moment of recognition, and it's all vanity. It's all pride and pettiness. And I thought, it would have been better if you just didn't show up to get the award. Because his reputation in that moment in so many people's eyes was just incredibly tarnished. And we realized suddenly this, this is a guy just like us. He's human. What's interesting is that this can happen we look to people in the Bible as well. Sometimes they seem larger than life, sometimes because of historical difference, uh, distance or because of uh, what they did in the Bible. We, we kind of have this otherworldly view of people. We forget they're, they're just human like us. This is not fiction. These are real people that, that God is telling us about. And one such person is the Apostle Paul. Writing to the Corinthians, he reminds them that when he first arrived in their city to minister the gospel to them, he said it was in weakness, in fear, and with much trembling. Now, now even as we have been tracking in this series that Pastor Rick and I are doing through the book of Acts, that, that's not the picture that immediately emerges in our minds of Paul. One, one who is weak and is fearful and is trembling but he's human. He's human just like us, and humans struggle. But what led him, though, to, to be in such a state when he arrives in Corinth? Well, let's think about uh, just the immediate past of Paul. As we saw 
uh, in Acts 17. Let, let's just kind of do a, 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 a very high altitude flyby and think about what, what has Paul had in his life here recently? In Philippi, he was able to plant a church that began growing, but he was beaten, jailed, and thrown out of town. He then went to Thessalonica amidst a good reception of the gospel, but opposition to his message from the Jews forced him to leave the city by night. He ended up in Berea, where people listened intently to his message, studied the scriptures with him, and and many believed as a result. And yet the same people who were troublemakers in Thessalonica came to Berea, and he had to leave town again. This led him to Athens, where he was immediately discouraged and distressed because of the multiplicity of idols that he saw throughout the entire city. He began preaching Christ, and some began to say, what is this new teaching? And they, they, they took him and gave this, him, him this opportunity to speak at the Areopagus, the sort of philosophical and religious TED Talk capital of the ancient world. The message began well, but the moment he got to Christ and the resurrection, he was scoffed at and was unable to finish. Many believed, but he was also left with a lot of indifference from his audience. That brings us to chapter 18. So Paul's been beaten, jailed, mocked, and driven out of town several times. And now, to add insult to injury, his money's gone. Not that he was robbed, but the money that he had earned from tent making or had been given to him from supporting churches has run out. And so he's kind of landing in Corinth on fumes. And he arrives not at a place that was anyway a safe haven for him. Corinth was a large, powerful city with lots of wealthy people in addition to the notorious amounts of uh, slave class that was in the Roman Empire. And Corinth had a reputation, a wide reputation for rampant immorality. In fact, the, the city's name, Corinth, became a verb for all kinds of sexual deviant activities like prostitution. We think about all this we realize it's actually not very surprising that Paul would later write both to the Thessalonians and to the Corinthians and describe his time coming into this town as being one in which he was in distress and affliction, in weakness and fear and much trembling. Here was a man that was wearied and worn down. He was suffering physically, financially, and probably emotionally. But he never gave up his calling in ministry because God never left him. In fact, when we look at this passage, what we see more than anything, at least what I want to highlight more than anything this morning, is God's loving kindness towards Paul. It was no surprise to God. It was was not something he had to research, something he had to figure out from clues. God knew Paul's heart. He knew that he was afflicted and distressed. He knew Paul was feeling weak and fearful and was walking around with much trembling. And God said, I have something for that. I have many things from that. Paul, let, let, me, let me take this time and encourage you and build you up so that you can press on. That's what we want to see today as we look at Uh, most of Acts chapter 18. This is our tradition. I would invite you to stand in honor of the, the reading of God's Word and follow along in your Bibles. Acts chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, "'Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles.'" And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people." And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galio, 
the proconsul of Achaia. When, when he was the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions and words and names from your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincre, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples." This is the Word of God. May He bless its reading. You may be seated. This passage describes the apostle at work, but more than that, it shows how the Lord loved him and encouraged him during a particularly vulnerable time. And again, this is, this is more than just history. This is more than just abstract teaching. What we see here is what we see even in our own lives. Every believer is called the kingdom work. It's going to look different based upon where we live, what kind of job we have, what our gifting is, who our friends are. But all of us are called to help the kingdom of God go forward through the preaching of Christ. And just like Paul, if we are seeking to be faithful with that in the midst of all the other things of everyday life, we can find ourselves wearied, worrying and worn out. And yet, the same ways that God encouraged Paul, he wants to encourage us today. God loves us no less than he did Paul. So as we think about this passage this morning, I want us to think about it through this lens. What are the ways that God is seeking to encourage us out of his great love for us in Christ? What should we be on the lookout for? What should we be doing in order to receive this good gift of God's encouragement to us. Three things. First of all, we should fellowship with godly community. We should fellowship with godly community. When we talk about fellowship, that's a, that's a great Christian word that gets thrown around, and it can mean just about anything, okay? It can mean uh, I, you and I meet up and we go see a movie together, but we're Christians, so we're, we're fellowshipping together, right? It might mean that uh, we go out for lunch or we have meal together as a church. We go do that in the fellowship hall, right, where we eat together. It could be something more intensive. We get together for Bible study or, or spiritual conversation. That can be fellowship. But the way the Apostle Paul can use it, it's also formal partnership, money being given from churches to him. In Philippians, he says, I, I thank God upon every remembrance of you in your partnership in the gospel. That word partnership is koinonia, which is translated fellowship all over the rest of the Bible. So you say, well, well what are we talking about this morning? Well, I'll just be honest and say, in one sense, I'm talking about all of it. Uh, I don't know if you ever go to Home Depot or not, but the last several times I've been there over the last several years, they have this massive craftsman tool chest. costs like $8,000 on sale. And, and it's got about 50 drawers, and there's every imaginable tool known to man inside. At least that's what I'm assuming. And uh, any job you have, boom, you open it up, there's your tool, you go for it. And you know what? That's the church. The church is like that. I, I don't care who you are, what you're going through, but... God has a tool for that, and it's one of His people that can come into your life, fellowship with you, and help sustain you through that difficulty. And in our passage this morning, in the midst of all those different diverse ways that we can fellowship together, God shows us two specific things, and I want to focus on those in Paul's life. First of all, we see fellowship as friendship, fellowship as friendship. Notice that Luke says that when Paul arrived in Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, what's that about? 
Well, we know not from necessarily within the Bible itself all the situation, but God gave us this ancient historian named Suetonius, and he kind of airs out uh, Rome's dirty laundry in his short little history book. It's actually kind of a fun to read. If you're not really in ancient history, I would start with that. But what he tells us is this, there were several disturbances over someone named Crestus that caused uh, this guy, Claudius, to get frustrated and say, I want all the Jews just out of Rome. And most people think that Crestus is a mishearing, which led to a misspelling of another Latin word, Christus, which we have in our New Testament as Christ. So the gospel was making such headway, such traction in Rome, that you had Jews that were becoming to faith in Jesus, and you had other Jews that thought that it was blasphemy, and you had all of this tension building up, and they just said, forget it, you're all gone, get out of here. And what Rome meant for evil... God meant for good. Like a master chess player, God is moving the pieces of humanity across the board of the world and our lives. And He sets this couple right here in Corinth waiting for Paul to show up. They're Christian Jews who are believers in, well, they're Jews who are believers in Christ. They're tent makers by trade. Paul also was a Jew who believed in Christ and likely learned the trade of tent making while he was studying with rabbis because they encouraged people to learn a trade. And so here, here you are, basically ready-made friends. They have all these essential things in common, and Paul hears about them, and he goes and seeks them out. And I can only imagine was encouraged by their friendship. You say, well, is that in the text? Well, not explicitly. But what happens when he gets ready to leave Corinth after a year and a half? These guys pack up their business and go with him. And then you read all of his letters, and guess who shows up again and again and again? Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla. God was very kind in providing godly friends to the Apostle Paul at a time when he probably felt like he had no friends. It was him against the world. And yet here are this couple with whom he could talk about the things of the Lord and who could encourage him in his mission. And it's actually that second part that leads to the second kind of fellowship that we see here. We see friendship, but we also see fellowship as partnership. Partnership. Paul's tent making has often been misunderstood. Some think that he uh, did tent making all of the time, uh, but, the, but the reality is um, when we look at the ancient world when we think about what was required for that kind of business, Paul just was not able to lug all of that tools and equipment around everywhere he went while he was, while he was working. So that means while he's working as a tent maker, he did exactly what he did in Corinth, and that is he finds a business that's already established and basically says, hey, do you need some more help? And he's basically a contract worker for this other business. Now, you may be wondering uh, why he did that. Well, first of all, his ministry was expensive. It was not cheap to do what he did. That's not because, you know, Paul had a high living standard or was some kind of apostolic diva, but just think about this. Um, there was a study that was recently done a few years ago, and uh, they determined that the cost of being able to write, not even send someone there, but to write the letter of 1 Corinthians was the equivalent of $2,000. Just think about that. Think about that. We, we, we have in our book, we read it in a, in, a, in a yearly Bible plan. Some of you read it uh, this, uh, this summer, and you probably just buzzed right through. You picked up some stuff. You thought it was great. That cost a significant amount of money that Paul didn't have to spend. So, so he would have been tent making, and he probably would not have even earned enough at tent making to pay for that. It would have come from money given from other churches. You think about how God, when we talk about when we give the offering, God bless it and multiply it, those are not empty words. The offering that was given that ultimately ended up paying for 1 Corinthians has been blessed and multiplied for 2,000 years and has helped establish believers in the faith. Isn't God amazing? And so here, Paul did tent making to fill in the gaps when support from other churches ran out. Because while he was in a town planting churches, he didn't receive an offering. He didn't take a salary from them. Because there were lots of people that did that, religious and philosophical teachers, they went everywhere, and they basically demanded all these high costs to give you this amazing knowledge, and they basically fleeced the crowds. And Paul says, I don't want Jesus in any way associated with, with that kind of thievery. So I'm going to work if I need to, but then once the church is established, 
once they, they have Paul's bona fides, they know he's legitimate, they, they, they come to saving faith in Christ, then he says the expectation is give some support because others need to hear the gospel as well. So remember, Paul is coming now at Corinth. His support is gone. He goes to Aquila and Priscilla, and they're more than just friends talking about the Lord, encouraging Paul. They hire him and therefore have a hand also in supporting him. They are partners now in his apostolic mission, but they're not the only ones. They're not the only ones. Notice verse 5 says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now on the surface, that verse doesn't look like a very big deal. And part of that is because, as much as I love the ESV, it's a little weak sauce here, okay? Um, Here's how other translations render this. Uh, The New American Standard Bible. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Some of you have the NIV. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And you can do look at the CSB and the New uh, English Translation and all these other things. And basically, that's how they're translating this. And, that, and I've, in case you're wondering, yes, I asked Pastor Greg, hey, come in, give me a Greek consult. And he agrees. This is the way that we should understand this passage. Greg, I hope you're doing well. Something dramatically changed when Silas and Timothy showed up. Paul now is not tin-making Monday through Sabbath and then preaching on the Sabbath and then getting back at it. No, suddenly now the tent-making is gone and he is fully devoting himself to gospel ministry. How can he do that? Because he got money. The support from churches showed up and now Paul is free to fully engage in ministry. How do we know that? Well, we know that because Philippians 4, 2 Corinthians 11 tell us that Paul received support from the Philippian church while he was at Corinth. Where was the Philippian church? It was in Macedonia, the same place that Timothy and Silas have just arrived from. And so this meant that Paul now receives this encouragement from the fellowship of God's people and their partnership in the gospel that now he can can put work aside and begin focusing on disciple-making. It was a moment of encouragement at just the right time from God so that he might be able to press on. Now, many of us think, yeah, this is great, this is great, we know this, this is good. But here's the thing, here's, here's my concern. As believers, we can talk a lot about fellowship. We can even be hospitable and generous but we don't actually get close to the vision of biblical community that God has for us. A kind of community that transcends, it certainly includes friendship, but it transcends friendship. It, it, it goes beyond that so, that so that the people, particularly that are, that are in this room, co-members at this church together, become the absolute most important people in your life. That, that's what God's getting at in the New Testament when he talks about the fellowship of God's people. So in the first service, I just kind of gave a couple of examples off the top of my head. What, what, what happens when I drop dead tomorrow? Well, hopefully that's not going to happen. But if it did, are you going to look at my wife and kids and say, well, I hope we had good life insurance. Let us know if we can help you get a job interview. Or are you going to say, what is the need? How do we meet it until you're able to get back on your feet? Are you, are you going to be there, not just in the week that I'm, that I'm gone with some meals, which are great and helpful and needed, but are you going to be there a month later and six months later? Are you going to be there at Christmas and on our anniversary, still encouraging her and building her up and helping her feel loved by God through you? What happens when you lose your job, the, the factory or the office building, whatever it is, completely burns down? And you just bought a new house, and now you have no money to pay for it. So they take your house, and you're literally homeless. I'm going to say, hey, come at my place. We've got extra room. We're going to figure something out in our basement. We're going to set you guys up until you can figure things out. And then somebody else 
is going to say, no, 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 no. We've got more room. They're going to come live with us for a while, and we're going to take care of them. You guys are too busy with other stuff. And then the third person is going to yell from the back and say, no, we're empty nesters. We've got all kinds of space. We've got multiple rooms. Every kid can have a bedroom. They're going to come stay at our house. We begin fighting about who's going to be more gracious to this family. Do you understand? That's what biblical fellowship should look like. It's not just something that we punch in on a Sunday morning and say, well, I talked with somebody on the way in. I talked with somebody on the way out. I fellowshiped. I met with somebody for coffee this week. Let me tell you something. All those things, again, craftsman tool set, all of those things are used by God in our lives. So I don't want to disparage them at all, and I'm not. But there's, there's more to press in on. There's deeper to go in those relationships. There's, there's more profound ways of expressing what the world cannot comprehend, that we are one in Christ. This is what Paul has experienced, and this is what helped encourage him in the faith and to press on. And if we don't make at least attempts at this, an essential part of our calendars, our weekly, monthly, yearly lives, then we are missing out on a key resource of God's grace meant to encourage us. So, so God wants to encourage us during difficult days with fellowship in godly community. But the Bible also says that if we want to experience encouragement, we should look for gospel fruit. We should look for gospel fruit. When Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia, it's with more than financial support. It's also with news of the churches. If you remember from Acts 17, if you remember back from Pastor Greg's first message in 1 Thessalonians, that Paul had to leave quickly and he was worried about whether or not they were really grounded in the faith and whether they were going to be okay, whether they were going to continue on or, or, or get caught up in false doctrine or, or, or leave the faith altogether. In fact, it's the news that Silas and Timothy bring to Paul in Corinth that prompts him to write the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Here's what he says in chapter 3 of that letter. Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason, brothers and sisters, in our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Listen to that again. In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Paul sees the fruit of the gospel. He sees faith and love. He sees these Thessalonians longing to, to be with Paul again, just as he was longing to be with them. And he says, even in the midst of distress and affliction, I am now comforted because I know that you are where you need to be, that you are growing in the Lord. But God wasn't done encouraging Paul with gospel fruit. Even in the immediacy of what he's doing in Corinth, we're told that he is laboring among his fellow Jews to show that the Christ was Jesus, and yet many, verse 6, opposed and reviled him. They're saying, we don't want to hear this message. We don't want Jesus to be the Christ. We're looking for another kind of Christ. And so echoing the prophet Ezekiel, Paul says, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And what he's drawing there is from Ezekiel's vision of the watchman on the wall. And Ezekiel is challenging the priests, the spiritual leaders, and he says, the watchman is supposed to be at the front. He's supposed to have his eyes open. He's supposed to be on guard. And when he sees danger, he sounds the alarm, and the, and the army gets ready, and the people are defended. But if, but if the watchman doesn't do that, then the, the death of the people, their blood is on his hands. And Paul is saying, hey, I've been here. I'm sounding the alarm. Judgment is coming, and the way of salvation is in Christ. And if you refuse that message, your blood is on your hands, not mine. You are now responsible because you've been told the way of salvation, and you have rejected it. And so he says, I'm going to go now and preach exclusively to the Gentiles. And what happens next is for me what I can only describe as one of the greatest displays of moxie in the entire book of Acts. Maybe the whole Bible. So, I, so get yourself in this mental picture, okay? Here is the synagogue. This is where the Jews meet to discuss the Bible, to worship. 
Paul has been preaching in the synagogue, and now the Jews say, we don't want you in here. Get out. And he says, fine, I'm leaving. The blood is on your hands. And what does he do? He goes to another believer who lives next door to the synagogue and says, hey, can I set up my ministry base here? Can I have people into your house so that I can preach the gospel to them? Can I stand out in front of your door and tell people that Jesus is the Christ so that they can find salvation through faith in him? And the guy says, yeah, sure, absolutely, come on in. And so what you have now is this amazing tension building up. I mean, it's palpable. I mean, you know, what nerve Paul has in in a good and glorious way. And so you can imagine, here's this guy, this this guy Crispus, the, 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 the kind of resident theologian pastor of the synagogue, and he's trying to encourage the Jews and everything. And Paul is literally right next door saying, hey, did you know that Jesus is the Christ? He's the Messiah that came that we've been waiting for. Let me tell you about him. There's a great passage in Isaiah 53. It's all about how he is our substitute before God. And that Christmas is like, no, shut up. They don't want to hear your message about the gospel. And, and, and Paul is telling Gentiles, come on in, come on in, let me tell you. What. Guess what happens? Crispus gets saved, him and all his household, and they, and they believe. And we're going to find out later he got booted out of the synagogue for this. They put somebody else in there. God didn't have to do that. But what an amazing encouragement to see the immediacy of that kind of ministry fruit. To see literally your enemy, that the guy that is spearheading the charge to shut you up, get saved by your message. Verse 8 is one of the most glorious verses of the Bible. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with all his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. God kept giving him believer after believer after believer. And all of that would have been encouraging to Paul. It was a reminder that God is at work. Paul feels weak and distressed. And God says, it's okay, keep going. Look, look at this fruit. People are being saved from your preaching. Keep going, keep going, don't stop. And even today, as God's people, again, there is this danger of coldness towards the things of God. So we hear someone get saved. We see someone be baptized. And we're like, oh, that's great. Isn't that nice? Good for them. Good for them. Is that it? I mean, our theology, especially this church, says something far more profound. A miracle just happened in in our presence. Here's someone who was dead in their trespasses and sins. They were born with a heart bent towards rebellion against God. And as soon as they began to get older and make decisions on their own, that sinful heart was expressed in a sinful life. And it was only gracious circumstances that hemmed them in and kept them from fully giving themselves over to sin. And because the sin, it's not just bad things that we do. It's an offense against God. Any and all sin deserves God's wrath, His just punishment, which means that unless something happens, something changes, we're born on our way to hell. And yet God graciously steps into that problem. And he says, here's my son. He's perfect in every way. And he's going to live a life of perfection in this life for you. He will live faithfully and obediently, not, not to earn himself credit with me, the father, but rather for you sinners. More than that, he's going to take upon himself all of your sin, all of your rebellion. He's going to take that upon himself on the cross so that when I pour out my wrath upon him, it's not for Jesus' sin, it's for your sin. And we hear this good news that Jesus is the Savior. Well, what does that mean? That means that when we turn away from our sinful lifestyle and we trust that Jesus will bring us to God, God considers all of our sins The penalties paid for on the cross and all of the righteousness that we need to stand before him comes from Jesus and is counted as our own. So salvation on the last day doesn't end up as some cosmic scale where we hope the good outweighs the bad. God destroys that scale and says, I've accomplished everything in Christ. So when somebody believes, we should weep with joy because now they are going to be with us for all of eternity. There's another shining example of God's gracious mercy towards sinful humanity, most of which couldn't care less about Him. But there's more. God doesn't just save. God sanctifies. 
So how often do we look around and see what God is doing, not just in bringing people to himself, but in bringing those people and then changing them to be something other than what they were? How encouraging is it when we see the man who was on the verge of suicide regain hope and go on living? The the single mom who struggles finding peace and growing in patience to care for her kids. The abortionist who realizes that the unborn is more than just an inconvenience and a means of profit. but There's a human life to be preserved and they leave their practice behind. The teen who is no longer consumed by the opinions of others that causes them to make bad decisions or keeps them from making good decisions and they're free now to live as they should. The young man who finds victory over pornography and is able to invest in real relationships. The racist whose eyes are open to now see all people having equal dignity and worth. Or maybe, maybe just the everyday Christian like most of us who we look back this time last year now looks a little bit more like Jesus. All evidences of gospel fruit that should help remind us God is still at work. God is still changing lives. And so we don't need to be discouraged, but we can be confident and hopeful in him because that is the power of Christ on display. And before we go to the next encouragement, let me just say, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not someone who's, who's turned from sin and, and trusted in Jesus, I hope you will because that is the only way the only way that sinful humanity can be made right with a living and holy God. So this morning, look to Jesus and put your faith in him. You say, well, I, I got questions about that. Come see me. Come see just about any member in this church, and we'll be happy to answer those questions and tell you more about God's amazing son. If we want to be encouraged to be able to continue to live for God and serve Him. We will fellowship with godly community. We will look for gospel fruit. And finally, we will remember God's promises. We will remember God's promises. The Scriptures are loaded with God's promises. But here's the problem. We've got to remember context because sometimes those promises are not for us. They're for very specific people at very specific times. And we're going to make a big mistake if we try and make that promise all for us. Here, Paul is giving a very specific promise at this point in his life. Verse 9 says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, this just happens, at least the way Luke presents it, pretty soon after Crispus gets saved. So you can imagine... Paul is discouraged, he's got fear and trembling as he begins, and news comes. And he's got friends, and he's got support, and he begins preaching more earnestly, and he has this massive victory with Crispus, but then he realizes, okay, that the tension is rising, the heat is turning on, and I know what comes next. It's the, it's the unlawful accusations. It's the lies that try to get me to be run out. And sometimes that results in in beating. Maybe I'm going to be imprisoned. And so I think based upon God's command in verse 9, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. Here's the apostle Paul tempted to do the opposite. Tempted to be afraid. Tempted to be silent. And God shows up and says, What kind of an apostle are you? No, that's not what he says. He gives him promises of comfort and assurance. He says, don't be afraid. Go go on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Three promises that that Paul has given. First is is the promise of God's presence. Luke has been showing from Chapter 1, verse 1, that the risen Christ is with his people. And here it says, the Lord said to Paul, and I understand the way Luke writes that to be, the Lord Jesus himself says to Paul, I am with you. And and that is, is a promise that shows up elsewhere in the New Testament. That's yours too. The Lord is with you. He is present with his people. 
But, but then there's the promise of protection. Unlike so many other places, again, where Paul's experienced physical abuse, the Lord says it's not going to happen here. Now, understand, Paul is reconciled to suffering as a part of his mission. He knows that that's going to happen. But let me tell you something. You take so many beatings, I think he's going to be pretty happy when God says, you're not going to get beaten this town. I'm, I'm giving you this round off, Paul. Just relax. Take it easy. Keep going. I think, I think that would be encouraging to him. And yet, it looks like the promise might fail. Because the Jews unite against Paul, verse 12, they take him to the tribunal and they start making accusations against him. And you, what is Paul thinking about? We don't know. I hope he's trusting in this promise. And maybe he is because he doesn't say, I'm out of here. Instead, he, he gets up and he starts to make his defense. Something of which he's probably said many times before. We know he's going to give many times after. And God doesn't even let him get a word out. Galileo jumps in and says, I don't want to hear any about this. I don't want to hear this. Your accusations mean nothing to me. It's your own religious problem. Deal with it. And you can, you can just imagine Paul be like, oh, okay. I'm good with that. Everybody good with that? Well, the Jews weren't good with that. Because likely this guy, the synagogue leader named Sosthenes, he is the guy who was making the argument before Galileo. And, and the Jews are astonished, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul is supposed to be out of here. He's supposed to be arrested. He's not our problem anymore. Sosthenes bungled this, so what do they do? They publicly beat him, verse 17, right in front of Galileo. And he, does, he doesn't care. Whatever, he says, it's your, own, it's your own affairs, handle it. Paul is protected from any violence at Corinth. And then there's the promise of converts. God would save many through Paul's preaching. He's already done that, and he continues to do that. 18 months, and Paul just continues to reap the harvest. I mean, you can imagine if you're Paul. Maybe not, just imagine you're me, because I'll be, I'll just be honest. There are times when you preach, particularly when it was weekly for me, you preach and 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 you preach, and you, and you at least from what you can see, nothing is changing. And you wonder, am I doing it wrong? Does this work? Is God still, is God still here? And God makes very clear to Paul, I've got a lot of people I plan to save in Corinth. So you keep preaching because, because that's how we're going to do it. You preach the gospel and I will send the Spirit to call them to myself. Now, now it, such was the magnitude, unless you think that we're overplaying this, such is the magnitude of the encouragement that Paul receives. I think in thankfulness to these promises that we see in verse 18, that he actually put himself under a vow of thanksgiving to God. But whereby at the completion of this vow, he shaved his head. So he says, whoa, what, what happened? You know, it's not just, well, I look, this is fashionable now. No, it's let me tell you what God did for me. Let me tell you how he encouraged me and sustained me during difficult times. Now, again, we need to be careful here when we talk about remembering God's promises. There are times when I've heard good, sane believers make big mistakes when it comes to God's promises. Here, Paul was given specific promises at a specific time. You think about the promise of protection that doesn't continue through the book of Acts. In fact, we know from church history, Paul did not die an old man in bed. He died killed for the faith at the hands of the Roman government. So when we talk about God's promises, we need to think clearly, especially when we talk about things like safety and health and finances, then we really need to tread carefully. Let me just be really clear. God never, never makes a blanket promise to his people that they will be financially secure or physically safe. If that is what you are depending on, let me burst your bubble now because for 2,000 years, countless believers in countless countries have lived in poverty and died by the sword because they're Christians. So if you hear a preacher making these promises, flee, he or she is a false teacher and should not be listened to. And if you don't believe that, believe the author of Hebrews because at the end of chapter 11, he says, these giants of the faith and when you read some people like Samson, you're thinking, really? i got to think about this. 
But these giants of the faith got their reward, but some of them not in this life. Some conquered kingdoms, and some were sawn in two. Both had faith in God. So don't let someone tell you, well, those promises will come if you have faith in God. No, that's, again, not the way this works, friends. God never makes a blanket promise of financial security or physical safety. And in fact, a couple weeks ago, teaching through Sunday school, there was a message on uh, how God uses suffering in our sanctification, and it made me think what would be really helpful is a blog post that would have testimonies of maybe four or five believers and how they persevered through suffering and continued to trust God. And if you read our blog, you know that post never happened because the first person that I thought of, I got stuck on. Her name is Dr. Helen Rosevere, and I went looking for a video of her giving her testimony, which I'd heard before, and I started watching video after video after video. I started rereading sections of her books because her life story is dramatic, God-honoring, and faith-building. And if you don't know her, Dr. Helen Rosevere was a single woman who served as a medical missionary to what was then the Dutch Congo in the 1950s. She enjoyed a few decades of ministry success, and then the revolution came. And she says for a while it was really annoying to have these young guys with pistols and automatic weapons looking over her shoulder while she's doing procedures, while she's visiting in homes. And she thought, I'll be glad when this is over. But then the stuff of nightmares happened. One night she was kidnapped, brutally beaten to the point that teeth were knocked out. She was sexually assaulted and held captive for five months. She was eventually rescued, eventually went back to the mission field, the same minister in the exact same place. And years later now, and on the back end of her life, people have interviewed her and almost all the people have asked her, in, in that darkest moment, did you doubt God's goodness? Did you feel abandoned by Him? And she says, for a moment I did. She says, but then she said that she had an overwhelming sense of God's presence. And in that moment, she said she felt like God was trusting her with this suffering, meaning God trusted that when he brought this suffering, he allowed this suffering to come into her life, that she would look to him in faith, continue to trust him, believe him, and serve him, and therefore have a testimony that would encourage others, even with much less suffering, to continue to love and trust and serve the living God. And so she said, in that moment, in this what should have been a physical and emotional pit, she felt the warmth of God's love in her life. The Bible never promises that things are always going to be easy. But He's given us the most important thing that we need, life with Him. Beyond that, He's given us people to love us and to help us in these times. And the one promise that we see in this passage that God gave to Paul, which he gives to all of his people throughout the Bible, is the promise of his presence. And so I would say today, right now, write this down, memorize this, tuck it away, write it on the inside of your eyelid, whatever you have to do to always remember this. Hebrews 13, 5, God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. If you are one of his children, God will never leave you or forsake you. Let that be an encouragement to you in your darkest days. If you're a parent like me, when my kids were little and I wanted them to get something, maybe I'm making dinner or whatever, and I'm saying, hey, go over there and get that thing for me. And they go over and they say, where is it? I say, it's right there. They say, where? It's like, it's the corner of the table. And they're like, where? I don't see it. It's like, it's red. It's right there. And they, and they can't see it. And, I, and it's, it's kind of like, stop what I'm doing. And I walk over there. It's like, this is it. And they go, oh, I didn't see it. 
You see, some of you have had this experience, right? Some of us can be the same way when it comes to God's love and encouragement for us. He, he, he is pouring it out all around us, but because of our difficulty and our suffering, we begin to turn inward. And, 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 we, and, and, we, and that, that inward is not just the, the kind of good groaning that says, God, I want it all to stop. I want the new heaven and the new earth. I'm, I'm ready for your son to return. But, but it's, the, it's the kind of bad intro, uh, inwardness that says, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. Why is God being so mean to me? And, and, and it's staring right in front of us is all the evidence that God loves us and is ready to encourage our faith to sustain us during those difficult times. So don't wait for the difficulty. Right now, start the habit of looking for His encouragement. Commit to fellowship with godly community. Look for gospel fruit and remember His promises. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. God, you have spoken to us in ways that help us to know you know our weakness. You know our frailty. You know that we are but dust. And yet, God, you give us life-giving words to sustain us, to help us. You give us historical examples that we can identify with not merely as moral examples, but as examples of those who put their faith in you, that we might be encouraged to put our faith in you. Father, we pray this morning that you would use Acts 18 in our life to either sustain us now in difficulty or to prepare us for difficulty. God, regardless of where we're at, help us to be ready to see all of the love and the encouragement that you are pouring out into our lives. Help us not forsake these good gifts that you give to us. Now, in the quietness of your hearts, I would encourage all of you to continue to pray. Perhaps asking God to forgive you because of Christ's work. Or if you are already a believer, asking Him to encourage you and convict you and help change you in the coming days based upon what he has said to us in Acts 18.